Janine Patton-Coble, breast cancer survivor and founder of Little Pink Houses of Hope, joined me on this week's episode to share her story behind the pink ribbon. In 2009, Janine was diagnosed with stage 3 HER2 positive invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 39. Janine talks about her diagnosis and the course of treatments, as well as life that still happens in between. Janine shared the inspiration for Little Pink Houses of Hope that offers week-long retreats for breast cancer patients and their families. Take a listen in as Janine shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. Thank you so much for being with me today, Janine. Oh, yes. Happy to be here, Melissa. Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about your story um, and how this all kind of came about for you. Yeah, so I was like a lot of people who are diagnosed young. Um, I was a person who had no history in my family of any type of breast cancer. I really didn't have any symptoms. I, you know, was running along in my daily life, being a type A crazy person, running from place to place with a kid and doing everything I could do, uh, like a regular old mom. And it hit me totally and completely out of the blue. So obviously I was 39 when I was diagnosed, so I wasn't old enough to be having mammograms right. yet in terms of my doctor. So I had actually been doing self-breast exam my entire life and I found it myself wow. um, in my, yeah, in my left breast. So it came, you know, fast and furious. Uh, my tumor was very large because I'm HER2 positive. So one month I felt nothing, and the next month I felt something the size of almost like a ping pong ball. Well, that's so what I was going to ask fast. you. Yeah, so I'm thinking like, you know, first of all, kudos to you for doing your self-breast exams because I know there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, uh, that did that's not do good. them. Yeah, that yeah, did no, not do good. them consistently. So, yeah, I mean, really, kudos to you. Um. But I was going to, like, that was going to be my question is, you know, if you, if you were doing them monthly, like you didn't feel anything leading up to the time mm-hmm. where you felt the lump and knowing no, it's. No, I, oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I felt nothing, Melissa. And what I felt was I'm a person with very, very dense breast tissue. And anybody who has dense breast tissue knows that it's not the easiest thing to kind of do self-breast exam. And so I know a lot of people who have dense breast tissue who just kind of are like, well, I don't know what I'm feeling, so why bother kind of thing, which is exactly opposite of what I tell people. I'm like, no, if you have dense breast tissue, you need to be doing self-breast exam because you're going to know better than anybody else what your breast feels like. Um, so that if you do ever feel some sort of a change or something, you'll really, you'll be like, Hey, that's completely different. And it feels completely different. So yeah, I had done it every month and, and sure enough, I I did it the, you know, the beginning of June back in 2009 and I felt a lump and I couldn't believe what I felt because like I said, it was, it was fairly large when I felt it. Yeah, Um, for sure. so. So did you think like, did you immediately go to breast cancer or did you, you know, because there's no family history. There wasn't anything that really, you know, kind of yeah. flip a red flag, if you will. Yeah, there's, although there was no family history, I immediately went to, oh my gosh, okay. I have breast cancer. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, you go back to kind of kudos for doing the self-breast exam. Well, I had, I went to Catholic, this is a crazy story, but I went to Catholic school years and years ago. And unfortunately I had this nun who drew like the short straw of the day in terms of like, she had to be the person doing the, um, the instruction on how to do self-breast exam. And you could just, she was so uncomfortable doing in the Catholic entire school? thing. 
<laughs> yeah, it's Catholic school. It was the most hilarious like hour of my life. And me and my me, you know, me and my fifteen year old friends were like cutting up and you know Oh, I'm sure. We were barely paying attention and you know but um I was walking out of the classroom and I actually had very large breasts at fifteen years old. I was walking out of the classroom and she kind of looked at me and pointed at my breasts and said, It's it's people like you with those big boobs. You're gonna be the ones you need to do this. Oh my God. And it was a very like off the cuff, kind of snidey kind of thing to say, but God bless her that she did it because it kind of was the thing that kind of scared me into being like, oh, I, I really need to do this. Yeah. Oh my God. And gosh. so thank you, Sister Delarosa is all I got to say. <laughs> that is like the craziest, funniest story. Yeah, like, I'll I'll take it in this journey. I'll take the crazy nun who, um, yeah. who is the reason that when I was thirty nine, I was still like petrified that I was going to get it. So, but but yeah, so it's that dense breast tissue, and I felt it. And you know, I tell people all the time, like whatever you hear, do self breast exam. And I feel that kind of about everything now. Like you're going to know your body better than anybody yes. else not just breast cancer, but any sort of symptom as a woman, you can advocate for yourself better than anybody else if you go in and are very confident, like, here's what's happening. So I immediately went to breast cancer and, um, you know, immediately scheduled an appointment with my OBGYN. I went to see him and, you know, he told me that day, he goes, Janine, you probably have cancer. So I'm going to go ahead. We'll do a yeah, he goes, we'll do a biopsy. And he goes, but like, I'm telling you, that's probably exactly what it is. Oh, that's and interesting. He had actually, yeah. And he had actually lost his wife like two years previous to breast cancer. Okay. So as a doctor, I think he was very super aware of, yeah. you know, yeah. Because well, I think... Like from, from what I have heard, um, and I was, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was 31 when I was diagnosed, but what I have heard is more often than not women under the age of about 40, 45 typically are told "Mm, it's probably not cancer. So to hear your, you know, your story, Mm -hmm. just that your doctor said like, oh, it's probably cancer. I, I think kind of stunned me. Although I think I'm also still trying to, you know, pick my mouth up off the floor from the, the uh, Catholic nun um, <laughs> doing the breast exam. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But it's, it's really interesting because I'm, you know, now doing the work that I do, I'm around so many breast cancer patients that are young. And I hear that same story that yeah. you're talking about all the time. Like they told me it was nothing. Come back in six months. Just watch it. Oh, it's probably just a cyst. It's probably this. And I think because I was a person that I always advocated myself for myself, I always did my yearly exams with my doctor and I had been to see him for my yearly exam like three or four months prior to that. So he knew that in such a short period of time, this whole thing had popped up when I called him that day and said, Hey, I need to come in and I need to see you. So, um, so yeah, so I left that appointment, you know, with a biopsy scheduled for a couple of days ahead. And it was interesting because there's so many people who kind of play that, that waiting game and they don't Mm -hmm. tell anybody and, And it was almost the opposite for me. I, you know, called my sisters, my brothers. I have, there's six siblings. We're like this big, huge crowd of great friends of siblings. And I called my parents and it was almost like I had a week or two to lay the groundwork for them to be ready for the diagnosis. Because I almost feel like that day that he said that, I was like, oh crap, like this is where I'm headed. So I'm a planner. And so for me, I was like, okay, I'm just going to tell everybody. And everybody had the same reaction. Oh, it's probably just a cyst. You're too young. You know, I got that same reaction Mm -hmm. from everybody. But in the back of my head, it's, I knew that it was something way more than what anybody was telling me. And yeah, it's, it's, it, and it is strange because it's very opposite of what you hear from a lot of people diagnosed under 40. Right. Um, so, yeah. yeah well, so. and sometimes, you know, I feel like sometimes we just know. Yes. Like we just yeah, know. I knew something was yeah. wrong. 
I knew something was wrong. I knew it wasn't right. Um, it didn't feel right. Um, and yeah, so I'm just, I'm glad I went in. I'm glad I went in as quickly as I did and I didn't wait. Yeah. Um, you know, because if I had not been doing self-breast exam, there's no telling, you know, where I would be today because of how quickly it grew. And, um, you know, it was just kind of out of control with how quickly it was growing. So I'm happy that, that I had that in my arsenal of my toolkit is self-breast exam. Right. Um, because without it, I really, I I don't know the situation I'd be in. For sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, I try really hard not to think about the, the what ifs, you know, what if I hadn't found it? What if I, you know, hadn't done this? Um, so there are two questions that are popping into my mind. One is, did they send you just straight for a biopsy or did they do a mammogram and an ultrasound as well? Um, he sent me straight for a biopsy. Okay. Which I thought was super interesting. Again, now like further into this world and hearing people and, you know, knowing how they normally do it. And I think it was just because he was so positive that that's what it was, that he didn't want me skipping any steps. And he knew I was getting ready to go out of town for um, a week or two. So he really was trying to kind of push me through the, push me through the mill, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, all my tests done before I left. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, because again, it, for a lot of people, it is kind of a waiting game Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it can be a month before people get all of those tests scheduled. So that's, you know, exactly. Good for him. Exactly. And I, I think that, I think that, um, and I had felt this with that particular doctor, um, all along, I think that there was a level of understanding, um, the need not to be waiting and the need for answers and the need for assurance and a plan because his wife had had it. So, you know, he was that spouse who had to wait too long and he was that spouse that couldn't get answers. And, you know, he was a doctor and that was frustrating. So, you know, any of his patients that he's dealt with that's have, that have had breast cancer, he's really been amazing with. So I give him a lot of credit for, for, you know, being so proactive and advocating on my behalf as well. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, he, he carries a different perspective than, Correct. you know, some other people um, or other doctors. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, um, I agree with that. Like, you know, good for him for being such a strong advocate um, and not, you know, pushing, pushing anyone off to the side um, to say, oh no, you know, it can't possibly be that. Um, so the other Right. Because that story, that story totally discourages me when I hear yes. it. And I hear people say it makes my blood boil <laughs> that there are people that are tr- treating women that way. Yes. Um, that's the thing that I think appalls me the most is we are strong individuals and yet in a healthcare system, we can get pushed to the bottom of the barrel or brushed off that that symptom really doesn't mean that or, yeah. you know, and it's, it's appalling to me. We should all have access to the best care ever. And, you know, that would be my hope and my goal one day. Yeah, 100%. And I will tell you that it makes my blood boil too. Just, you know, like just remembering that I was told like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm pretty sure, you know, pretty positive this is not cancer, but I'm going to send you anyways. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and he really only did it out of, I don't know why he did it quite honestly, but you know, I was concerned and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, had I not kind of nudged a little bit, I didn't nudge a lot, but you know, had I not nudged a little bit, I don't know. You know, it goes back to that. Thank God God that you nudged. Right. You know, thank God that there was something in you that said, nope, I just want an answer. Yeah. Because once you have answers, you can have a plan. Well, that's but it. if you don't have any answers, you know, there's no plan to be had. So. Right. Yeah. And my hope is at least, you know, whatever people take away from this, um, you know, I, I hope that at least one of those things is, you know, be an advocate and and nudge and don't settle, you know, and if something doesn't seem right, just continue to push um, because, you know, again, we know our body is better than anybody else. And yes. to allow you know, the doctor that I saw, I had never seen before until that day. Oh, the, wow. Yeah. The person that I was going to was out of the country. And so I didn't even have an opportunity to actually, you know, meet with the, the gynecologist that I typically did. And here was mm-hmm. this male doctor who I'd never seen before, shared with him, 
you know, just some information. And he was like, no, I don't think that's what it is, but we'll send you anyways. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that your normal doctor who was on vacation, do you think that doctor would have had the same response or do you think they would have pushed? I think she would have said, let's get you going. Gotcha. Yeah. So because she... It's a good thing you channeled your inner, your inner missing doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and the reason why I say that is because a few years later, I started having, I was having like major pains um, that were shooting up from my rectum into my back and they were sending me for bone scans and, you know, just upper endoscopies and lower um, colonoscopies and, you know, just every oscopy that you could think of um, and couldn't find anything. And finally I went into her and she said, I feel like we should just do a laparoscopic um, surgery to look at whether or not you have endometriosis. And I had it really Mm -hmm. bad. That's interesting. I had endometriosis too. Yeah. Did you take tamoxifen? I didn't. No, I didn't. I'm actually no. ERPR negative. And oh, okay. Two positive. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You did say. So, okay. Yes. So yeah. that's that's my huh. diagnosis. So I didn't have I didn't have to deal with the the dreaded tamoxifen. Right. Yeah. I feel like. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've told my doctor like I feel like it was the tamoxifen, but she says no. But there's some research mm-hmm. out there that says, yeah, maybe. Um. Mm-hmm. So whatever. Yeah. Um. So my second question was. Um, you know, you, you really kind of had it in the back of your mind that this was going to be the diagnosis. So when you actually got that diagnosis, what was your reaction? So, um, I went to the doctor originally on that Monday and, you know, he had told me that that's what he thought. And then he got me in for a biopsy and he got me in for a biopsy the day before I was leaving for vacation. So, um, you know, I did the biopsy and the guy doing the biopsy said to me, he's like, yeah, it's probably cancer. Like every step of the way people were saying it's probably cancer. So when I got the, so we left for vacation that next day and I actually got the official call while I was on vacation, but I already knew like Mm -hmm. we actually, you know, we told our son I had cancer (laughs) like before I actually got the official call because I'd been told three times that I had it before that. So, you know, we really were in a situation where it's like, we just have to, we're, we're a family that we see ourselves as a team. I have one son. He was 11 at the time. We're a team. And so, and my son's a big basketball player and all this kind of stuff. So we kind of put in the whole team analogy, um, to try to have it make sense to him. But, um, yeah, it was, it was um, uh, humbling is a really super weird word to use, but it was humbling to get this diagnosis. I felt super vulnerable. Yes. And that's not who I ever was. I was like this type A person that, you know, in charge of everything and, I felt super vulnerable about just having all of this emotion. And I felt like the only thing that mattered was what can I do to be here for my kid? Mm. Like, I'll do anything. Throw the kitchen sink at me. I'll take whatever drugs you want. Cut my boobs off. Cut my head off. I don't care as long as I can still be here for my kid. That's powerful. It was just that overwhelming sense of like like time and how much more do I have? And I've never thought about time at 39 years old. You never think about how much time you have. I mean, the only thing I ever thought about in terms of time was, yeah, I should probably start saving money for retirement sometime. (laughs) You know, I wasn't thinking about how much actual time I had left. So it brought in all those forces of, of just total lack of control. Mm-hmm. And as a control freak, it kind of, um, it messed with my central nervous system. I couldn't like, I couldn't ever just be calm or just feel like I was me because it's like every sense I had was heightened and it was just a lot to take in, yeah. <laughs> a lot to take in. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I agree with so much of that. I don't have children, so I 
can't necessarily relate to that, but I did have three nieces and they were really like, you know, when I thought about all of this, it was, what do I do to survive so that I can be here for them? You know, not obviously, I don't have that same connection, but I love them with all my heart. And, you know, that's all I wanted was to, to be here, to watch them grow up and, you know, do the, the things that they're going to do in their lives. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And cancer. Because it's, at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, I tell people all the time, like, I worried more about leaving them. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't worry so much about having cancer. I just didn't want to leave the people that I loved. Yeah. And that's that's true whether you're talking about your kid or your parent or your nieces. Like, that's where we all are. Like, we don't we don't want to do that. And there's also a really kind of weird sense of like, once you're diagnosed with cancer, it is 100% not your fault in any way, shape, or form. But you know that that diagnosis, it's causing people pain. Mm -hmm. And they're hurting because they love you. Right. And it's just a strange thing to know about yourself that other people are really, really hurting because this is happening to you. And you can't do anything about it. You know, like you have to like walk through your own pain, walk through their pain and, and, but it's, it's hard. So yeah, it is. I totally totally get it with your nieces. Yeah. And I, you know, the whole, like, it's, it's watching, you know, it's, it's sitting in your own pain and then also sitting in the pain of other people because, I mean, Mm -hmm. I tried as hard as I could to protect everybody around me from what was going on and, um, Mm -hmm. just, watching my mom, you know, I think it was my mom that was the hardest to watch. Um, like she, she was so just upset when I was going in for my mastectomy. Like I just remember looking down the end of the bed where she was sitting and just in tears. And then as soon as I saw her, um, you know, it was, it was almost a disaster. So the doctor came in, scooped her up and took her out. But, you know, I remember that like, and it's, it's been 13 years, but that, that is forever yeah. etched in my mind, um, you know, to Absolutely. know how much and, they hurt. And everybody reacts so differently because my mom was the polar opposite. She was the one who'd like, her thing was she's going to send me every article. She's going to find a story <laughs> about somebody who had a great recovery. Like she was Miss Cheerleader, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it kind of it kind of drove me nuts. And I told her that, like, we're super close. I'm like, you're driving me nuts. Like, stop sending me articles. <laughs> And, but it's really interesting because I finished up all of my treatment in like 16 months and my very last day of chemo, I got a call from my mom that my dad had been diagnosed with bladder cancer Oh wow! and was in the hospital. And I literally left Duke hospital after chemo. I called my husband and said, I'm driving to Florida. He's like, what? I live in North Carolina, by the way. And I'm like, I'm driving to Florida. He's like, you just had chemo. I'm like, I don't care. Like dad's been diagnosed with cancer. Mom needs me there. And I drove, I drove to Florida. I came, I stayed for about two weeks as my parents went through all of those initial appointments and everything. And I came home and melted in my husband's arms. And I said, I don't know how you did this. Like this, this caregiver, this loving somebody who has it is way harder than having it. Like the sense of like not being able to do anything and just, you know, you just want to do everything. And so that caregiver piece is so real. So seeing your mom at the end of the bed. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it grips you and it rips you apart just just seeing it and there's nothing you can do because like you said you have to walk through your own pain right yeah well and I was it's funny that you bring that up because um caregivers have been really heavy on my mind lately um and I don't know that I mean I I'm always thinking but I feel like this time of the year just October brings up a lot of things and um you know I think about like populations that are underserved and you know male mm-hmm. breast cancer is one of them and you know like I'm just Oh absolutely. Yeah, so oh, I'm like struggling. Back. Yeah, with that and you know I'm like how do I create a, a male breast cancer awareness day, right? Um but I was thinking mm-hmm. like you know we have breast cancer awareness month and we have, you know, ovarian cancer awareness month and every cancer awareness month. And I'm like, 
where is the caregiver month? Mm -hmm. Like where does that come in? And, you know, it's really interesting because when I was going through my cancer, like everybody, my family wanted to do something. And like I said, I have this huge group of siblings and they're awesome. So, you know, they did Team Janine and we did this walk and everybody walked all day. I passed out for a day and a half after the walk because I had no energy left. <laughs> um, but they wanted to do something. But it was interesting because none of it was necessarily helping them. Yeah. You know, they were just, it was just a way to show support for me, which is not the same thing as them getting the support that they need. Right. And it's really interesting because that was crystal clear to me that there was a ton of stuff in this cancer universe for me as a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of programs, lots of services. Uh, heck, I go to a waiting room and I can find somebody to talk to and we talk about whatever's happening, you know. So I think as women, we have a tendency to be more relational anyway with those sorts of things. But husbands and kids or spouses and kids or partners and kids, it's very different for them. Absolutely. You know, because they walk through their days and my husband tells me the story all the time that like, if somebody asked me one more time how you were doing and I was like, she's doing all right. He's like, I'm not going to tell him how you're really doing because I'll fall apart if I really start talking about it. Right. But the other side of that is how are you doing? Like how are, how is your husband doing? And nobody asks those questions either. Exactly. And so it became really crystal clear to me when I was going through treatment that there's this vacuum that exists for care caregivers and kids. And there are some, don't get me wrong, there are some fabulous programs out there, programs I really highly recommend for kids, programs that are out there that some hospitals are running. But so many of them also, there's a component that's tied to a hospital, mm-hmm. which is the last place a lot of people want to go to for right. support. Right. You know, it's the scary place. It's the place that makes mom sick. It's, you know, all of those kind of preconceived things that that kind of get wound up in your head. And to be honest, they're just so busy as care, caregivers taking on the role of now all of a sudden I'm in charge of carpool and I got to make dinner and I got to go to the grocery store more. And, you know, so all of the roles and dynamics change when you have somebody going through cancer anyway, that it's, it's a tremendous load on, on a caregiver. And it's interesting. I just had this conversation literally 45 minutes ago with um, a friend in Arizona. And I said, you know, when you have a really good marriage, watch out when you get cancer because you're going to see a love you've never seen before. Absolutely. Like a depth, of, a depth of love that you never thought was possible, even in your good marriage. And if you have a really, really bad marriage, good luck right. because it's super hard. And that teeny tiny fracture and that teeny tiny crack in your marriage will look like the Grand Canyon sometimes. Absolutely. And, you know, so I think that caregiver piece is so important. So yeah, I urge you to to look at that and explore what else you can do with it. Because that's when, when I look at like the organization I started, that's who we really love and support in a way that we feel like nobody else really does. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's important, and I do want to talk about the organization, but I have a couple more questions for you. Oh, no, you're fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I want to kind of know, you know, obviously you talked about having chemo, um, but -hmm. what did you do in terms of the other treatments? Did you have a mastectomy? Did you do a lumpectomy? What what did you do? Yeah, so I had um, six months of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and my tumor shrank during that time, which is great. Yeah. And then I had surgery, um, the and then I had radiation, forty-two okay. radiations. Um, and it was interesting though because I had I'm a HER two person, so I took Herceptin, and I had serious cardiotoxicity, mm-hmm. so my heart did not do well on the Herceptin at the end, um, to the point where my ejection fraction was in the twenties and to the point where I literally sat down with people and they were talking about the heart transplant list if things had not turned around. Um, it was, I, I had real cardiotoxicity issues and then, you know, they took me off of it and cause I was done and I turned around in about five weeks, um, in terms of my heart function. So that's, that's great. I mean, that's a good part of the story. Yeah. It sounds amazing. But, I mean, like 
five weeks doesn't sound like, yeah. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> yeah. a pretty quick turnaround, quite honestly. Yeah, well, that's that's how they say it works um, with Herceptin. Okay. Your heart, can, your heart can bounce back, which is really, really good. But it's interesting. I did an interview um, with some clinicians at Duke, and I was, I was taped, and I was taped, and they taped my surgeon, and they taped my nurse practitioner. And so I did this interview, et cetera, et cetera. I listened to the eventual interview of all three of us, and they were like, she had every symptom, and every time she came in, we're like, that's kind of normal. Don't worry about it. <laughs> They're like, but we didn't want to keep telling her, like, no, you're our outlier. Everything's everything's happening wrong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was really, it was quite, it was quite funny. Um but so it was, it was a hard, hard road. I was diagnosed in June. I had surgery in December. I finished up chemo at the end of November, I had surgery in December and then started radiation in February and finished radiation. I had 42 rounds of radiation and then I was on Herceptin through the following October. Okay. So, you know, it's like a lot of people, it's a long 16 yeah. months that you just hope you can make it through and there's hills and valleys and you know there's there's bad appointments and good appointments and there's you know sleepovers and basketball games and yes. you know there's still life is life still going on as all of that yeah every all the in-betweens and yes. all the in-betweens is where I tried to find all of my joy to keep going yeah and yeah and that was um that was kind of the biggest thing for me too, was finding those places of joy and just happiness and laughter. Laughter was the biggest mm -hmm. thing for me. Lots of tears, um, but also lots of laughter. <laughs> yeah. I, it is amazing how much I cried during that time compared to the rest of my life. Oh my life. gosh. <laughs> yeah. My poor plastic surgeon. I'm pretty sure he didn't know what to do with me because I would walk. I probably spent, I mean, I probably spent the most time in his office just in general, but just the tears that fell in his office. It was just poor guy. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I honestly think that there's some plastic surgeons and there's some oncologists out there that really should write books, not about medicine at all, <laughs> just about the patients who came through and sat on those tables. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that my, my, they would probably have, have some hilarious stories. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about the organization that you started. So, um, sure. you know, I, I I love the idea. Um, so I, I definitely am excited to share this information. And, um, you know, obviously with COVID, it's a little bit different right now. But, um, you know, hopefully there are people out there that will take advantage of, you know, what it is that you're you're offering. So Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the Little Pink House of Hope and why you started it, how you started it, and um, what it's all about. All right. So we'll go back to how I started it before I even talk about what it is. So um, so that same trip where we went to the beach, uh, the day we got there, I went for a run to try to get out of my head and get the Academy Award winning speech to tell my son that I had cancer. And I ran across, because if I did that right, I'd be a perfect mom. <laughs> um, but I ran across this old abandoned compound of houses and I, it just piqued my interest more than anything else. And I was just like, God, oh, this is really weird. It was like 20 some houses at the beach, beach front, like ocean front. And nobody was there. And I was like, this is so weird. And um, so it just was a distraction more than anything else. And I turned to run back to our beach house. And I literally was physically hit with a calling to create a place like this for cancer patients. So the funniest thing is, of course, I had just been diagnosed the day before. Yeah. So I ran home and I told my husband, oh my gosh, they didn't check my brain. I have a brain tumor. I think God's, I think God's talking to me. And he's like, we have to tell our kid we have cancer. Can we not deal with this right now? <laughs> and, um, you know, really just kind of brushed it, brushed it off because I had way more important things to do. I had to try to figure out how to stay alive. A little bit. You know, I so. mean... Yeah, some other priorities first. Uh, here and there, here and there. Um, so anyway, but that that calling, that knocking was literally just a catalyst that didn't go away and wouldn't go away. And 
So that whole first year that I was going through cancer and treatment, I just, it wouldn't leave me. It kept knocking. It wouldn't go. And I kept trying to run away from it. Like, I mean, <laughs> I even went to my pastor. I'm like, letting my pastor take me off the hook. I'm like, yeah, so, yeah, but I got to, I have chemo and I have this and I have this. I feel like God's calling me to do this. But but really, I might die. So, like, I mean, I was putting it all out there because all I wanted him to do was say, Janine, don't worry about it. God loves you anyway. You don't need to do that. And he was like, oh, no, God's calling you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it was not what I was expecting. That was not what I needed to hear. Oh my buddy, gosh. come on. Um, so, so anyway, so what we did was we created Little Pink Houses of Hope. And it's that same idea of, you know, there's houses that nobody is in that can be utilized for cancer patients. And we, as an organization, create an entire week of programming for families. So Little Pink House is what we do. We do a free week-long vacation for breast cancer patients and their families. And we typically bring anywhere between 10 to 12 families at the same time. Every wow. family gets their own Every family gets their own house. And we do programs like, I mean, fun, empowering programs. We have, you know, like a family game night and we do stand-up paddle boarding and we might go out on a boat cruise and, you know, just really fun, fun, fun things to try to get away from everything being about cancer. Because as you know, that whole time you're in treatment, gosh, it's exhausting how much everything's about cancer. Like you think about it all the time. Everybody talks to you about it all the time. And it's like, sometimes I, one of my girlfriends and I would tell her, I just like, be like, I just want to talk about like, you know, who the cute guy on TV is or what the kids are doing. Like, (laughs) I agree. Oh my gosh. Cancer's heavy. Cancer's super heavy. And it's like, it's there the first thing you wake up in the morning and it's the last thing mm -hmm. you think about when you go to bed at night. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's funny because after doing this, uh, I started Little Pink 10 years ago. And so after doing it, what we consistently hear from families is, oh my gosh, it's the first time I felt like myself again. It's the first time I feel like my husband looked at me and didn't see me as a cancer patient. It's the Mm -hmm. first time my kids have felt normal again because they've been around other kids whose moms and dads have cancer. And, you know, so it just normalizes it where you don't have to be the only person with it. You don't have to, you know... It's, it's exhausting. Having cancer is exhausting. Not only having it, but then trying to make everybody else around you feel better because you have it when you have it. Right. So, um, yeah. So we do these awesome weeks. We do 20 different weeks a year. And um, I will tell you that it is, I'm super proud of what we've created because I feel like people come and they say that they come as strangers and they leave as family. Yeah. And they develop this amazing support group that is bound to everything. And I was in a support group when I was going through my treatment. And I love those girls. Yes. But at the end of the day, I don't know their husbands. I don't know their kids. Right. Like, I know, I know the people who show up in that room. And it's so totally different when, like, you meet their husbands and you see their kids and you play with them. And there's a bond that is so incredibly deep because you're making friends as couples or as a family or, you know, and that makes a really deep, deep bond with our families, with our families who come. And it's, it's really, it's really neat to see. So they come from all over the U.S. They come all stages. So we don't prioritize one stage over another because we realize, yeah, yeah, we realize that the cancer bomb goes off. And when that bomb goes off in your house, it affects you. Every person that gets it immediately goes to, I don't want to (laughs) die. So what, whether you're stage one or stage four, like that's still in the back of everybody's mind. Like I I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to leave my family. And so, so yeah, so people of all stages can come and, um, yeah, it's, I'm super proud of all of the people. We have thousands of volunteers. We have 20 different communities around the U S and in the Virgin islands and in Costa Rica that we go to. And, um, the communities come out and they make it theirs and it's 
kind of like the best vacation anybody ever gets. Well, I love it. I mean, I, as soon as I, I, honestly, I don't even know how I found you. Um, first of all, I'm sad that I didn't find you when I was going through my treatments. Um, but you know, I, I love the whole idea of it. Um, I will tell you that one of the, you know, just going on, um, some of the retreats that I've been on, I've stayed connected with those people. Um, and not only the, the people who were going through cancer, but like the, uh, the volunteers, I mean, I've maintained those connections too. So, you know, it really is a, um, it's an experience. I mean, I, I remember the first retreat that I went to, it was in, it was a year after I was diagnosed and, um, I went by myself and, you know, luckily it was for a young adult, um, Mm-hmm. retreat, but, you know, I'm still very connected to those people. And it was the first time where I just felt like, you know, I don't have to think about cancer and I don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, I'm not for this week. I'm just not going to the doctor. I'm not, you know, doing all of those things that, you know, you mm-hmm. do as a, as a patient. Um, and it was amazing. Yeah. It was truly amazing. And, you know, to have other people, and I, this is going to sound so weird, but those of us who are in this cancer world, like there's certain things we just joke about that yes. other people don't get. 100%. <laughs> and it's okay. And so to be surrounded with people who get that uh, makes a big, big, big difference. And that piece about volunteers, you know, we're very lucky and very blessed. We have thousands of volunteers and, um, you know, they come and they serve right alongside families. They help care for the kids. They help, you know, set everything up for all of the activities. They help with meals. Um, it turns into almost like an adult camp for yeah. that group of yeah. volunteers. Like they all stay in the same house and, and it's something they really, really, really look forward to every year. And, you know, once we kind of hook a volunteer, they're hooked and they want to come every year. It's how they choose to serve. It's how they choose to take their vacation and give their time to other people who are going through it. It's also for us, it's turned into a great way for people who've came on a retreat. If they're interested in giving in that way with their time and kind of like sharing their experience, it's a great way in which for them to integrate back into the cancer community in very much a place of advocacy and a place of love. So we love, we love that aspect. And I always feel like, you know, many of us, not all of us, and it's okay. Wherever somebody is, is totally fine. There's, you know, no expectation Mm -hmm. that once you've been through this, that you have to, you know, stay involved and and give back in any way. Oh, zero. Yeah, zero I feel like many people do feel a sense of how can I help somebody else that's been through this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, you know, I think it's a great way to, you know, kind of transition from, you know, somebody who's participated in a retreat to a volunteer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, it was really funny because our very first retreat we ever did was, um, you know, our criteria at that time was you had to be uh, under 12 months of being finished with treatment to apply. Um, this is in the very beginning. So now our guidelines are a little bit different. Uh, we prioritize people who are currently in treatment because we feel like there's just a larger number of people applying in that category anyway, but, but in the beginning. And so on the very first retreat, my husband looked at me and he goes, you realize like we qualify for this retreat, honey. We (laughs) I'm like, I realize it, but still go get the groceries and go do, you know, like we still got to serve people. But it was that same place. I mean, I was in that place when I started it. It was like, what can I do? And how can I, part of it was a little bit of, I've lived this life. Like, I want my kid to be proud of me. Like, I'd be happy to leave something that leaves a mark or that touches people. And, um, you know, so none of that was lost on me in the very beginning. And, probably good that it wasn't because, you know, given the diagnosis I was given and everything, I really was concerned I wouldn't be around five years later. So for me, it was very much, if I'm going to start this organization, that's great, but I got to get all this stuff out of my head and I have to have 
policies and procedures and protocols on paper. And, you know, there has to be systems and processes and it has to be a business and, you know, so that it can last in case I'm not here. And I think that was really, really key for Little Pink in a lot of our initial success a couple of years in was that we really looked at, okay, how do we formalize this? How do we have, you know, what's our training protocol for volunteers? What's, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to have retreat leaders and directors in local communities? How are we going to train them? How are they going to feel connected? You know, so we really looked at all those pieces of the puzzle so that it would never fall on one person. It would always be, you know, part of a greater system. Well, you're past 10 years at this point, so. <laughs> I am past 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, like that is a huge celebration. So, you know, those things that you put in place, um, I'm sure things have shifted over time. But, um, right. you know, clearly what you had started, you know, back then, um, past 10 years ago, um, has been mm-hmm. successful. And, you know, I, I love what you're doing. Um, I think it's amazing. I know yeah. that there are, um, there's a retreat here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm in Mesa. Um, you know, so I, we do one, we do one in Sedona out your way as well. Oh yeah. Scottsdale yeah. and Sedona. Yeah. We love those. We love those too. And, and I will tell you that, you know, COVID has been really super interesting. Yes. Um, so what we've seen is we've seen a lot of organizations kind of not be able to do what they've done in the past. And we looked at it completely like an opportunity to grow and do more. Okay. And so what we've done is we're still sending families. We're still giving them a house. We have taken away some of the communal programming Mm -hmm. for safety and health guidelines and, you know, numbers and that sort of thing. Um, They get Visa gift cards to handle their expenses as opposed to, you know, some volunteers doing some stuff. And we pulled our volunteers back for their health and safety. But And then we've also added virtual retreats where now we are coming into families' homes virtually for a weekend and doing amazing programming and they're connecting. You know, the whole goal of that is that they still get that connection piece uh, from our regular retreats. And so we're going to end up serving more people than we served in the beginning. Yeah. uh, Or, you know, earlier this year. So we're excited that we've managed to adapt because... At the end of the day, we know how isolating this experience can be for people. And then you add COVID oh on top gosh. of it with, with <laughs> patients having to go to treatments by themselves and not yes. be able to have people there. And, you know, there's just, there's an isolation and a loneliness to it. And so our, <clears throat> our job, I tell people all the time, our mission, I can give you some great mission statement or whatever, but really at the end of the day, our, our mission is just to put a huge loving embrace around cancer families. That's it. I love and, it. you know, if we do that, we're successful and we're having to do a socially distant hugging embrace, <laughs> <laughs> but we're still, we're still doing it. But they know? still feel so, it. Yes. Yes. Oh, they definitely do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, again, I mean, I, as soon as I saw it, um, I knew that I had to have you on the podcast and we've been trying for months to, um, do this. <laughs> I almost feel like it's been close to a year. Um, I don't even know, but, um, you know, Good I things have to wait. Melissa. That's right. Good things have to wait. 100%. I totally agree. Um, and it has been well worth the wait, um, because you were just absolutely delightful. I love the story. Um, and I'm, you know, super excited to share this with our listeners. And for anybody that's interested in applying to um, go on a retreat or donate a property or volunteer, they can go to littlepink.org. Um, for and that is, that is correct. We open up our applications for next year for people to attend and for volunteers November 15th. Okay, perfect. So Good to yeah, know. That's, our, that's our date going out. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Janine, thank you so much for spending time with me, for sharing your story and um, giving a little bit of information about Little Pink Houses of Hope. And um, yeah, I just can't say thank you enough. It's been a great conversation. Uh, Yeah, I've enjoyed it. And thank you for advocating for stories, because I feel like people's stories matter. Yes. Um, 
because it helps some, it helps a lot of other people just not feel as alone or to see something in somebody else's story that they can relate to. And that at the end of the day, finding that similarity in this world and finding, you know, a place of love that exists out there is just so incredibly important for all of us. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com. Absolutely.